Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Snoozecast, the podcast designed to help you fall asleep. Find us on snoozecast.com and follow us on Instagram at snoozecast, where you'll find behind-the-scenes content. If you enjoy our show, please write a review on the podcast app. Also, share us with a friend. If you'd like to get an email once a week with what sleep stories we're coming out with that week, Along with any Snoozecast news, subscribe to the Snooze Letter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by Yarn for the Winter's Knitting. Tonight, we'll read An Old Fashioned Thanksgiving, written by Louisa May Alcott, after she wrote the Little Women trilogy. It's a simple story, set in the early 1800s featuring a country family in New Hampshire. It's full of idyllic and peaceful descriptions from an earlier time. Alcott was an American writer, raised in New England by her transcendentalist parents. She grew up among many of the well-known intellectuals of the day, such as Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Take a few deep breaths. Sixty years ago, up among 
the New Hampshire hills, lived Farmer Bassett, with a house full of sturdy sons and daughters growing up about him. They were poor in money, but rich in land and love, for the wide acres of wood, corn, and pasture land fed, warmed, and clothed the flock, while mutual patience, affection, and courage made the old farmhouse a very happy home. November had come, the crops were in, and barn, buttery, and bin were overflowing with the harvest that rewarded the summer's hard work. The big kitchen was a jolly place just now, for in the great fireplace roared a cheerful fire. On the walls hung garlands of dried apples, onions, and corn. Up aloft from the beams shone crook-necked squashes, juicy hams, and dried venison. For in those days, deer still haunted the deep forests, and hunters flourished. Savory smells were in the air. On the crane hung steaming kettles, and down among the red embers, copper saucepans simmered, all suggestive of some approaching feast. A white-headed baby lay in the old blue cradle that had rocked seven other babies, now and then lifting his head to look out, like a round full moon, then subsided to kick and crow contentedly and suck the rosy apple he had no teeth to bite. Two small boys sat on the wooden settle shelling corn for popping and picking out the biggest nuts from the goodly store their own hands had gathered in October. Four young girls stood at the long dresser, busily chopping meat, pounding spice, and slicing apples. And the tongues of Tilly, Prue, Roxy, and Rody went as fast as their hands. Farmer Bassett and F, the oldest boy, were chorin' round outside for Thanksgiving was at hand, and all must be in order for that time-honored day. To and fro, from table to hearth, bustled Mrs. Bassett, flushed and flowery, but busy and blithe as the queen bee of this busy little hive should be. I do like to begin seasonable and have things to my mind. Thanksgiving dinners can't be drove, and it does take a sight of victuals to fill all these hungry stomachs. 
said the good woman, as she gave a vigorous stir to the great kettle of cider applesauce and cast a glance of housewifely pride at the fine array of pies set forth on the buttery shelves. Only one more day, and then it'll be time to eat. I didn't take but one bowl of hasty pudding this morning, so I shall have plenty of room where the nice things come, confided Seth to Saul as he cracked a large hazelnut as easily as a squirrel. No need of my starving beforehand. I always have room enough, and I'd like to have Thanksgiving every day, answered Solomon, gloating like a young ogre over the little pig that lay nearby, ready for roasting. Sakes alive, I don't, boys. It's a mercy. It don't come but once a year. I should be worn to a thread paper with all this extra work atop of my winter weaving and spinning, laughed their mother, as she plunged her plump arms into the long bread trough and began to knead the dough as if a famine was at hand. Tilly, the oldest girl, a red-cheeked, black-eyed lass of fourteen, was grinding briskly at the mortar, for spices were costly and not a grain must be wasted. Prue kept time with the chopper, and the twins sliced away at the apples till their little brown arms ached, for all knew how to work, and did so now with a will. I think it's real fun to have Thanksgiving at home. I'm sorry Grandma is sick, so we can't go there as usual. But I like to mess around here, don't you girls? Asked Tilly, pausing to take a sniff at the spicy pestle. It'll be kind of lonesome with only our own folks. I like to see all the cousins and aunts and have games and sing, cried the twins, who were regular little romps and could run, swim, coast, and shout as well as their brothers. I don't care a mite for all that. It'll be so nice to eat dinner together, warm and comfortable at home, said quiet Prue, who loved her own cozy nooks like a cat. Come, girls, fly round and get your chores done so we can clear away for dinner as soon as I clap my bread into the oven called Mrs. Bassett presently, as she rounded off the last loaf of brown bread, which was to feed the hungry mouths that seldom tasted any other. Here's a man coming up the hill, lively. Guess it's Gad Hopkins. Pa told him to bring a dozen oranges if they weren't too high, shouted Saul and Seth running to the door 
while the girls smacked their lips at the thought of this rare treat. And Baby threw his apple overboard, as if getting ready for a new cargo. But all were doomed to disappointment, for it was not Gad with the much-desired fruit. It was a stranger who threw himself off his horse and hurried up to Mr. Bassett in the yard with some brief message that made the farmer drop his axe and look so sober that his wife guessed at once some bad news had come and crying, Mother, I know she is, out ran the good woman, forgetful of the flower on her arms and the oven waiting for its most important batch. The man said old Mr. Chadwick, down to Keene, stopped him as he passed and told him to tell Mrs. Bassett her mother was failing fast, and she'd better come today. He knew no more, and, having delivered his errand, he rode away, saying it looked like snow, and he must be jogging, or he wouldn't get home till night. We must go right off, Eldad. Hitch up, and I'll be ready in less than no time, said Mrs. Bassett, wasting not a minute in tears and lamentations, but pulling off her apron as she went in, with her mind in a sad jumble of bread, anxiety, turkey, sorrow, haste, and cider applesauce. A few words told the story, and the children left their work to help her get ready, mingling their grief for Grandma with regrets for the lost dinner. I'm dreadful sorry, dears, but it can't be helped. I couldn't cook nor eat no way right now, and if that blessed woman gets better sudden, as she has before, We'll have cause for Thanksgiving, and I'll give you a dinner you won't forget in a hurry, said Mrs. Bassett, as she tied on her brown silk pumpkin hood with a sob for the good old mother who had made it for her. Not a child complained after that, but ran about helpfully bringing moccasins, heating the stone, and getting ready for a long drive because Grandma lived 20 miles away and there were no railroads in those parts to whisk people to and fro like magic. By the time the old yellow sleigh was at the door, the bread was in the oven and Mrs. Bassett was waiting, with her camlet cloak on, 
and the baby done up like a small bale of blankets. Now, F, you must look after the cattle like a man. Keep up the fires, for there's a storm brewing. Neither the children nor dumb critters must suffer, said Mr. Bassett, as he turned up the collar of his rough coat and put on his blue mittens, while the old mare shook her bells as if she preferred a trip to Keene to hauling wood all day. Tilly, put extra comfortables on the bed tonight. The wind is so searching up my chamber. Have the baked beans and engine put in for dinner. Whatever you do, don't let the boys get at the mince pies. You'll have them down sick. I shall come back the minute I can leave mother. Paul come tomorrow anyway, so keep snug and be good. Depend on you, my darter. Use your judgment. Don't let nothing happen while mother's away. Yes'm, yes'm. Goodbye, goodbye, called the children as Mrs. Bassett was packed into the sleigh and driven away, leaving a stream of directions behind her. F, the 16-year-old boy, immediately put on his biggest boots, assumed a sober, responsible manner, and surveyed his little responsibilities with a paternal air like his father's. Tilly tied on her mother's bunch of keys, rolled up the sleeves of her homespun gown, and began to order about the younger girls they soon forgot poor Granny and found it great fun to keep house all alone. For Mother seldom left home, but ruled her family in the good old-fashioned way. There were no servants, for the little daughters were Mrs. Bassett's only maids, and the stout boys helped their father all working happily together with no wages but love, learning in the best manner the use of the heads and hands with which they were to make their own way in the world. The few flakes that caused the farmer to predict bad weather soon increased to a regular snowstorm with gusts of wind, for up among the hills winter came early and lingered long. But the children were busy, gay, and warm indoors, and never minded the rising gale nor the whirling white storm outside. Tilly got them a good dinner, and when it was over, the two elder girls went to their spinning, for in the kitchen stood the big and little wheels and baskets of wool rolls ready to be twisted into yarn for the winter's knitting. And each day brought its stint of work to the daughters, 
who hoped to be as thrifty as their mother. F kept up a glorious fire and superintended the small boys who popped corn and whittled boats on the hearth, while Roxy and Rody dressed corn cob dolls in the settle corner, and Bose, the brindled mastiff, lay on the braided mat, luxuriously warming his old legs. Thus employed, they made a pretty picture, these rosy boys and girls, in their homespun suits, with the rustic toys or tasks which most children nowadays would find very poor or tiresome. Tilly and Prue sang as they stepped to and fro, drawing out the smoothly twisted threads to the musical hum of the great spinning wheels. The little girls chattered like magpies over their dolls and the new bedspread they were planning to make, all white dimity stars on a blue calico ground as a Christmas present to Ma. The boys roared at F's jokes and had rough-and-tumble games over bows, who didn't mind them in the least. And so the afternoon wore pleasantly away. At sunset, the boys went out to feed the cattle, bring in heaps of wood, and lock up for the night, as the lonely farmhouse seldom had visitors after dark. The girls got the simple supper of brown bread and milk, baked apples, and a doughnut all round as a treat. Then they sat before the fire, the sisters knitting, the brothers with books or games, for F loved reading, and Saul and Seth never failed to play a few games of Morris with barley corns on the little board they had made themselves at one corner of the dresser. Read out a piece, said Tilly, from Mother's chair, where she sat in state, finishing off the six woolen sock she had knit that month. It's the old history book, but here's a bit you may like since it's about our folks, answered F, turning the yellow page to look at a picture of two quaintly dressed children in some ancient castle. Yes, read that. I always like to hear about the Lady Matilde I was named for and Lord Bassett, Pa's great-great-great-grandpa, He's only a farmer now, but it's nice to know that we were somebody two or three hundred years ago, said Tilly, bridling and tossing her curly head 
as she fancied the Lady Matilda might have done. Don't read the strange words, because we don't understand them. Tell it, commanded Roxy from the cradle, where she was drowsily cuddled with Rody. Well, long time ago, when Charles I was in prison, Lord Bassett was a true friend to him, began F, plunging into his story without delay. The Lord had some papers that would have hung a lot of people if the king's enemies got hold of him, but when he heard one day, all of a sudden, that soldiers were at the castle gate to carry him off, he had just time to call his girl to him and say, I may be going to my death, but I won't betray my master. There's no time to burn the papers, and I cannot take them with me. They are hidden in the old leathern chair where I sit. No one knows this but you, and you must guard them till I come or send you a safe messenger to take them away. Promise me to be brave and silent, and I can go without fear. You see, he wasn't afraid to die, but he was to seem a traitor. Lady Matilde promised solemnly, and the words were hardly out of her mouth when the men came in, and her father was carried away a prisoner, sent off to the tower. But she didn't cry. She just called her brother, sat down in that chair with her head leaning back on those papers, like a queen, waited while the soldiers hunted the house over for him. Wasn't that a smart girl? cried Tilly, beaming with pride, for she was named for this ancestress and knew the story by heart. I reckon she was scared, though, when the men came swearing in and asked her if she knew anything about it. The boy did his part then, for he didn't know. He fired up and stood before his sister, and he says, says he, as bold as a lion, if my lord had told us where the papers be, we would die before we betray him. We are the children and know nothing, and it's cowardly of you to try and frighten us with oaths and drawn swords. As F. quoted from the book, Seth planted himself before Tilly with the long poker in his hand, saying, as he flourished it valiantly, Why didn't the boy take his father's sword and lay about him? I would, if anyone was hashed to Tilly. You bantam, he was only a bit of a boy, couldn't do anything. Sit down and hear the rest of it, commanded Tilly, with a pat on the yellow head and a private resolve that Seth should have the largest piece of pie at dinner next day as reward for his chivalry. Well, the men went off after turning the castle out of window, but they said they should come again. So, faithful Matilde was full of trouble, 
hardly dared to leave the room where the chair stood. All day she sat there, and at night her sleep was so full of fear about it that she often got up, went to see that all was safe. The servants thought the fright had hurt her wits and let her be, but Rupert, the boy, stood by her, never was afraid of her strange ways. She was a pious maid, the book said, and often spent the long evenings reading the Bible, with her brother by her, all alone in the great room, with no one to help her bear her secret, and no good news of her father. At last, word came that the king was dead, and his friends banished out of England. Then the poor children were in a sad plight, for they had no mother, and the servants all ran away, leaving only one faithful old man to help them. But the father did come, cried Roxy eagerly. You'll see, continued F, half telling, half reading. Matilda was sure he would, so she sat on the big chair, guarding the papers, and no one could get her away, till one day a man came with her father's ring and told her to give up the secret. She knew the ring, but would not tell until she had asked many questions, so as to be very sure and while the man answered all about her father and the king, she looked at him sharply. Then she stood up and said, in a tremble, for there was something strange about the man, Sir, I doubt you in spite of the ring, and I will not answer till you pull off the false beard you wear, that I may see your face and know if you are my father's friend or foe. Off came the disguise, and Matilda found out it was my lord himself come to take them with him out of England. He was very proud of that faithful girl, I guess, for the old chair still stands in the castle, and the name keeps in the family. Pa says, even over here, where some of the Bassets came along with the pilgrims. Our Tilly would have been as brave, I know, and she looks like the old picture down to Grandma's, don't she, F? cried Prue, who admired her bold, bright sister very much. Well, I think you'd do the setting part best. Prue, you're so patient. Till would fight like a wildcat. She can't hold her tongue worth a cent, answered F. Whereat Tilly pulled his hair, and the story ended with a general frolic. When the moon-faced clock behind the door struck nine, Tilly tucked up the children under the extra comfortables, and, having kissed them all around, 
as mother did, crept into her own nest, never minding the little drifts of snow that sifted in upon her coverlet between the shingles of the roof, nor the storm that raged without. As if he felt the need of unusual vigilance, old Bose lay down on the mat before the door, and the cat had the warm hearth all to herself. If any late wanderer had looked in at midnight, he would have seen the fire blazing up again, and in the cheerful glow, the old cat blinking her yellow eyes as she sat bolt upright beside the spinning wheel like some sort of household goblin guarding the children while they slept. When they woke, like early birds, it still snowed, but up the little bassets jumped, broke the ice in their pitchers, and went down with cheeks glowing like winter apples after a brisk scrub and scramble into their clothes. F was off to the barn, and Tilly soon had a great kettle of mush ready, which, with warm milk from the cows, made a wholesome breakfast for the seven hearty children. Now about dinner, said the young housekeeper, as the pewter spoons stopped clattering and the earthen bowls stood empty. Ma said, have what we liked, but she didn't expect us to have a real Thanksgiving dinner because she wouldn't be here to cook it, and we don't know how, began Prue, doubtfully. I can roast a turkey, make a pudding as well as anybody, I guess. Pies are all ready. We can't boil vegetables and so on. We don't deserve any dinner, cried Tilly, burning to distinguish herself and bound to enjoy to the utmost her brief authority. Yes, yes, cried all the boys. Let's have a dinner anyway. Ma won't care. The good victuals will spoil if they ain't eaten right up. Pa is coming tonight, so we won't have dinner till late. That'll be real genteel. Give us plenty of time, added Tilly, suddenly realizing the novelty of the task she had undertaken. Did you ever roast a turkey? asked Roxy, with an air of deep interest. Should you darst to try? said Rody, in an awe-stricken tone. You'll see what I can do. Ma said I was to use my own judgment about things, and I'm going to. All you children have got to do is to keep out of the way and let Prue and me work. 
F. I wish you'd put a fire in the best room so the little ones can play in there. We shall want the setting room for the table. I won't have him picking round when we get things fixed, commanded Tilly, bound to make her short reign a brilliant one. I don't know about that. Ma didn't tell us to, began cautious F who felt that this invasion of the sacred best parlor was a daring step. Don't we always do it Sundays and Thanksgivings? Wouldn't Ma wish the children kept safe and warm anyhow? Can I get up a nice dinner with four rascals under my feet all the time? Come now, if you want roast turkey and onions... Plum pudding, mince pie. You have to do as I tell you. Be lively about it. Tilly spoke with such spirit, and her last suggestion was so irresistible that F gave in and, laughing good naturedly, tramped away to heat up the best room, devoutly hoping that nothing serious would happen to punish such audacity. The young folks delightedly trooped in to destroy the order that prim apartment with housekeeping under the black horsehair sofa horseback riders on the arms of the best rocking chair, and an Indian war dance all over the well-waxed furniture. F, finding the society of the peaceful sheep and cows more to his mind than that of two excited sisters, lingered over his chores in the barn as long as possible, and left the girls in peace. Now, Tilly and Prue were in their glory, and as soon as the breakfast things were out of the way, they prepared for a grand cooking time. They were handy girls, though they had never heard of a cooking school, never touched a piano, and knew nothing of embroidery beyond the samplers which hung framed in the parlor, one ornamented with a pink mourner under a blue weeping willow, the other with this pleasing verse, each word being done in a different color, which gave the effect of a distracted rainbow. This sampler neat was worked by me in my twelfth year, Prudence B. Both rolled up their sleeves, put on their largest aprons, and got out all the spoons, dishes, pots, 
and pans they could find so as to have everything handy, as Prue said. Now, sister, we'll have dinner at five. Paul'll be here by that time if he is coming tonight, and be so surprised to find us all ready, for he won't have had any very nice victuals, and Grandma is so sick, said Tilly importantly. I shall give the children a piece at noon. Tilly meant luncheon. Donuts and cheese. With apple pie and cider will please him. There's beans for F. He likes cold pork, so he won't stop to warm it up. For there's lots to do. And I don't mind saying to you, I'm dreadful dubersome about the turkey. It's already but the stuffing, and roasting is as easy as can be. I can baste first rate. Ma always likes to have me. I'm so patient and steady, she says, answered Prue. For the responsibility of this great undertaking did not rest upon her. So she took a cheerful view of things. I know, but it's the stuffin' that troubles me, said Tilly, rubbing her round elbows as she eyed the immense fowl laid out on a platter before her. I don't know how much I want or what sort of herbs to put on it. He's so awful big, kind of afraid of him. Oh, I ain't, said Prue. Well, I'll get the pudding off my mind first, for it ought to buy all day. Put the big kettle on, see that the spit is clean, while I get ready. Prue obediently tugged away at the crane, with its black hooks, from which hung the iron tea kettle and three-legged pot. Then she settled the long spit in the grooves made for it in the tall andirons and put the dripping pan underneath, for in those days meat was roasted as it should be, not baked in ovens. Meanwhile, Tilly tackled the plum pudding. She felt pretty sure of coming out right here, for she had seen her mother do it so many times. It looked very easy. So in went suet and fruit, all sorts of spice, to be sure she got the right ones, and brandy instead of wine. But she forgot both sugar and salt, and tied it in the cloth so tightly 
it had no room to swell, so it would come out as heavy as lead and as hard as a cannonball if the bag did not burst. Happily unconscious of these mistakes, Tilly popped it in the pot and proudly watched it bobbing about before she put the cover on.